afternoon. How was everyone? Good to see you. It's so very good to see you. Um, and I'm thankful that the mask came off without getting tangled. We'll have to work on that. Maybe there's a clip version. I don't know. We'll, we'll work on that, though. Uh, it is good. It is very good to be amongst you here on this uh, this afternoon. Uh, before we go to the to the Lord in prayer and open up the book of Amos, I kind of want to tell you a little bit about where we where we're going uh, with this. We we're in the middle of a series on on the minor prophets, discovering Christ Jesus in the minor prophets. So uh, back in April, back in April, Nathan and I spent a lot of time in prayer and talked about where we thought God wanted us to go as a church with our sermon series uh, and with our discipleship series renewed because uh, the sermon series shapes, shapes that. And so we, we, we prayed, we talked, and we prayed, and we talked, and we prayed, and we talked, went back and forth. Uh, for probably a period of a few weeks. And we really thought God wanted us to go through the minor prophets and discover Jesus Christ and see what he would show us in that place about who he is, who we are in him, how he's called us to live, right? And so then we, we, we lined out uh, what we were going to do during each week. And so we started with Ruth. Uh, you're probably aware that Ruth is not a minor prophet. But we really wanted to start with Ruth because she's, uh, I mean, she's an ancestor of Jesus Christ. And we wanted to kind of set the tone for seeing Jesus even in some of the smaller books like, like Ruth earlier in the Old Testament. Then we go from Ruth to Jonah, and we think, okay, do we want to do Jonah in one week? Well, no, let's, let's do Jonah in four weeks. And so we, you know, we lined it all out. Can we do that? Yeah, we can do that. And so, so we're going to do four sermons, not four chapters. There's four chapters, but they didn't coincide. Four sermons. We're going to do chapters, or chapters one was going to be the first two sermons, then chapter three in the third one in chapter four uh, in the the next one and then we said we're not going to preach specifically on chapter two because one three and four well they're narratives it's helpful to understand how things are written in scripture one three and four are narratives and chapter two is, is poetry it's a song that's about chapters one three and four okay so it's a little different so when we preached on chapters or when the or sermon number one and sermon number two and sermon number three sermon number four we you know, we, we put some of chapter 2 in each one of those things, and you know, what a beautiful thing it was to be able to see that. And, you know, and, but the, the hope was that we would see Jesus in the middle of doing that. So we come to Amos today, and there's nine chapters in Amos. We're not going to preach on nine chapters in Amos. Not even all in one day. That we would be here all day and on into the night. We are going to touch on bits and pieces of it. And then next week, uh, we're going to look at Zephaniah, right? And uh, Nathan Boyette's going to open up Zephaniah, one of my favorite passages in all scripture. Uh, I'm going to be on vacation, so I'm going to miss it. I might, might come back early for that. Uh, the week after that, Fred Andre is going to come and, and open up scripture for us and another one of the minor prophets. So looking forward to that. I love hearing different men open up the, the book of God for us and helping us to see who Jesus is in that. So that, that's our pattern. So what we did then, this will help you, what we did is after we lined that out and we lined out what passages were going to be on each Sunday, we then, through our adult discipleship ministry and our renewed uh, staff, we, we put together a series of questions that will help you discover the application and implications in each text. So we did that after we lined out the sermons, after we knew what we were going to preach on. And our hope is that you will then take those questions 
You can get a paper copy, but th it's probably easier just to download it on your phone or your computer from the internet or from the web, uh, from your smartphone app. And use those questions. I, I encourage you to use those questions, uh, even as you're listening to the sermon, uh, to, to discover more of who, how Christ would have you interact with him as you're listening. The questions are specifically designed this summer to, to focus on the minor prophets and seeing Jesus in those places. And some of these minor prophets are going to be hard for you to discover where they are because they're little. Like one page or two pages. Let me help you out with Amos. In the, in the Old Testament, you've got your five major prophets. And then you've got your 12 minor prophets. So your 12 minor prophets you start with Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. We've already been to Jonah. So Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and then Jonah. Amos is a larger of the minor prophets with nine chapters. We're only going to read five verses uh, initially at the end of chapter 9, but we're going to refer to some of the rest of it. So um, let, me, let me read to you from the Word of God in Amos in chapter 9. We're going to start reading in verse, verse 11. This is the Word of our Lord. In that day, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Let's pray to the Lord our God. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you open it up and you open it up for us, that you've given it to us. Father, pray that you would open up our hearts, Lord, that you would transform us, that we would not merely gather in head knowledge, but Lord, that we would be transformed by your word so that our very lives bring you honor and praise and glory. So we walk with you in this newness of life that you describe here at the end of Amos 9. Father, for this one that would open up your word, I pray that you would use me to pour out clear, clean, living water from the broken vessel that I am. For your glory in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. You know what? For, for folks that were in the midst of, of this time in Amos, oh, my friends, that they, they, I think they must have been the, um, the inspiration for C.S. Lewis when he wrote those famous words, it's winter and never spring. It's winter and never spring. In, in the uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in the first part of the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, there's a scene where uh, Peter and Edmund and Lucy and Susan, they're, they're questioning Tumnus and others. Why is, it, why, why is it always snowing? What do you mean it's, it's always winter? And, and he opens up to them, well, there's an evilness. There's a white witch that is in charge of all that's going on in Narnia now. And it's always winter. It's always winter. It's always winter, and it's never spring. Can you imagine a place where it's always winter and it's never spring? I mean, one of the things that we look forward to, right, 
when the, the, the days are short and the nights are long and the temperature is below zero maybe. We look forward to the fact that March is coming. April's going to be here. There will be May. Spring is going to come. There's always hope because we know at the end of every winter there will be spring. There's always hope. For these people in the book of Amos that are hearing this, this prophecy, it's mainly written to Israel, but, but also to Judah and some of the surrounding nations. There's two groups there that are, that are thinking it's always winter and it's never going to be spring again. Those that were hearing the words of this judgment in the first eight chapters and the first ten verses of chapter nine had to be thinking, is this judgment ever going to end? I mean, God, you're piling it on. This is getting really, really heavy. Is it ever going to end? It's always going to be winter, and there is no hope. There's another group. There's another group that was thinking it's always going to be winter, and it's never going to be spring. See, the judgment was given to these nations because of the way they oppressed other people in their midst. And those that were poor, those that were needy, as we'll discover in a moment, those who were poor and needy, they had to be thinking, is this oppression ever going to end? Is it always going to be winter? Will there ever be a spring? Will there ever be a day when I look forward to the sunrise? Or will I always dread it as just another day? Will it always be winter? and never spring will there ever be any hope there's a third group that this book speaks to and that's you and me and so i've got to ask us do you ever feel like it's always winter where there's so much hopelessness being thrown at you that you wonder if spring will ever come i read some of our news uh, and i read a lot of different news articles from a lot of different sources you can't just read. You can't just read one. You, you know, you got to read a bunch of them to get some balance, right? So I, I read a lot of different ones. And and early on in this COVID crisis, we had this uh, this this feeling from just a few that said, you know, this is this could last for a long time. But now you look across all of these n- news outlets, and they're all reporting the same thing. This could last a long time. Will there ever be a spring for us? Hopelessness. Or maybe you've been in a relationship and there's just no love there. And you put up with it week after week, month after month, year after year. And you wonder if there's ever going to be any hope. Maybe you're sick and you're hurting and you're just tired of this life. Maybe you're broke financially and you're wondering if there's ever going to be money left at the end of the month. And you're wondering if winter is going to last forever. My friends, this, this, this is written for you as well. It's written for those that were the oppressors in Israel. It's written for those that were the oppressed in Israel. And it's written for you and me to remind us that there is a spring, that there is a hope, and his name is Jesus. It isn't just that he brings hope. He is the hope. For us to understand the extravagance of that hope, though, we have to back up and look at the harshness of the judgment. We look at the harshness of the judgment for a few minutes, and you might be thinking the same thing. Is this ever going to end? 
That's why we're going to start. That's why we started with reading the end of the book. Because when we le- read the judgment part, I want you to remember that there is a spring coming. But first, let's look at the judgment. The judgment is real. We're going to back it up to chapter 1 and 2. We'll start with chapter 2. Let me tell you what happens in chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2. God is announcing judgment through a prophet Amos. Amos is a shepherd, but he's also a, a tender of fig trees. So he's a shepherd, but he's also uh, a farmer. He shepherds trees as well as animals. He's not a prophet by trade, but God has spoken through this man, an ordinary man, to the people of Israel. And the first judgment that he announces is to the nations that are surrounding Israel. Nations like Moab and, and Ammon and, and uh, uh, the, the, the Ammonites, the, the Moabites, the Edomites, these countries that had abused Israel and Judah for so long, countries that had turned their back on God and mocked God. God announces judgment on them. But then the next thing he does, he announces judgment on Judah. So by this time, Judah and Israel had separated northern kingdom and southern kingdom after the time of, of Solomon. Rehoboam and Jeroboam had divided the two, the, the nation into two spots, a northern kingdom and a southern, a southern kingdom. So Judah, his capital was, was Jerusalem, is the one that he, he starts with at this point. Uh, look, look with me, if you will, in verse 4 of chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord. They have not kept his statutes. But their lies, their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. They had rejected God's law. They failed to keep the statutes of God. They're going to just turn their back on God. Remember in Isaiah, we read that all we like sheep, you and me both, all we like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way. But God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So it's not just Judah that wanders away from the faith. It's, it's me. It's me. And you know who else it is? It's, it's you. It's all of us that at t- different times, maybe even minute by minute, wander away from the faith. And we fail to fix our eyes on our Lord. It's not just Judah, but Judah gets this bit of, of the judgment. And he says, so, so I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Judah. He's going to tear it all down. Then he goes directly from Judah to Israel, and most of the rest of the book is going to focus on Israel. Israel, um, let's pick it up there in in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they, they they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. The man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments that were taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Israel, Israel has turned far, far from God. There's at least three things that you see there just in this short, short passage. Look at verse 6 and 7, you see... Uh, end of verse 6 because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals these righteous individuals in Israel godly men godly women didn't it was poverty time they didn't have clothing for their bodies they didn't have sandals for their feet so they would go to the shoe store and they would say to the shoe store can you sell me some sandals and the shoe store would say I cannot sell you any sandals go get a lot go get a loan 
They'd go to the loan shark down the street. The loan shark would give them a loan. They would take it back and they would buy sandals. But now they owned money to the loan shark. An Israelite. Probably a leader in Israel. They weren't able to pay the man back. And so what did he do? He took their body. He took them as slaves. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy just for a pair of sandals. Now the sandals would have been a very basic thing that everybody needed, but they were also the dirtiest, the filthiest, probably the cheapest piece of clothing that someone would have had. As little as that is, these individuals would lose their freedom and become slaves just to have something on their feet. God is not pleased with this oppression. But he goes on. In verse 7, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Do you get a picture of that? That you've got this, you've got a poor man or a poor woman or a poor, poor child. And the picture God gives us is this one who the wealthy are taking their their feet and trampling the head of this poverty-stricken individual into the dust of the street. Turning aside the way of the afflicted. I'm sorry that you're afflicted. No, I'm really not. <laughs> Go away. Don't bother me. As they grind the head of the afflicted and the poor and the needy into the dust of the street. They had no love or care for those that were needy. A man and his father go into the same girl as the third part so that they may, so that my holy name is profaned. They had given themselves over to the gross worship of pagan gods. Sometimes at the altar of God, but most often at pagan altars that they had built up, these high places and strongholds that they had built up and they had accepted the, the, the worship of these foreign gods into a ritual, ancestral, sexual feast of intense evil. And as if that wasn't enough, the fourth thing we see there is they lay themselves down, this, this disgust, is laying themselves down besides every altar on garments that were taken in pledge. It was common that someone, if they were poor, they could take their garment. They would, they would give it maybe to the pawn shop owner, so to speak. They might take their cloak, their coat, their, the thing that you know, used to keep warm. They would give it to this individual in, in exchange for some money to get through the day. But the, the pattern was that this pawn shop owner would take the cloak and he would give it back to the poor man at night. So the poor man would not be cold during the night, during the, during the long night. But instead of giving it back, they used this cloak of the poor and the needy. They used the cloaks, the clothes, and they lay them down in the dirt and the dust and the foulness besides the altar so they can take part of these feasts. And then it goes on and it says they're drinking the wine that was taken in payment of fine. 
And the way the context reads and the words, what they tell us is that these fines were unjust fines. They were fines that weren't really owed. So it's as if they're mocking those that are poor. What would an unjust fine be? It might be something like, you're walking on the wrong side of the street. You owe the money. You're, you're talking to the wrong individual. You spoke to my wife. Maybe you're a Samaritan and you just spoke, spoke to an Israelite. You owe money for that. It's an unjust fine. Maybe you walked one step too many on the Sabbath instead of the 1,521 laws that they created for the Sabbath. You broke one of those, like walking one step too many. Or maybe you forgot it was the Sabbath and you actually spit, which was against the law because that was like making mud or pottery or clay. Therefore, it was work. And so there's an unjust fine that's given to them. And since the individuals didn't have money, what did they give? They probably gave the wine that they had harvested and prepared from their own little hillside farms. And the individuals take that to to get drunk. God's judgment on Israel, does it seem harsh? He goes on. He says, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above his roots. And also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. God is reminding them, look, I'm the one that established you and you've turned from me. You wouldn't be here if it wasn't for me. It doesn't seem harsh that he would judge them so. And you look over in verse in chapter 4. Verse 1, 1 and 2 of chapter 4. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The same thing we saw before. Bring the wine that you've taken from the needy that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, and even the last of you with fish hooks. The day's coming, God is saying, when someone's going to come, when they're going to grab you with a hook, and they're going to take you away. My judgment is coming. Then you move on down to, ch- to chapter 5, start reading in verse 21. These are famous words. You've probably heard them before in 521 through 24. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, God says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God's done with their righteousness. They're engaging in all of the sin that we just talked about, and yet they continue to bring offerings and lay them before the Lord. And God says, enough. They continue to sing songs, probably the same psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that they'd sung for generations, but their hearts are far from God. And he says, enough. 
You bring me these things, but I will not delight in them. I'm done with you. I hate, I despise, I'm done with your offerings. Then he says, but, big strong contrast there, but let justice roll down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Have you ever seen a flash flood? Maybe a flash flood that's coming down from a mountain and it's collected all the trees that have fallen, you know, over the winter and here it is springtime and, and the floods are coming and they come up out of nowhere it seems and there's boulders and trees that are rolling down in front of them. Let justice roll down like waters. Let it roll down. God is saying it's coming and there's nothing that you can do about it. It's coming. Righteousness like an ever flowing stream. It will not stop. My righteousness will be seen is what he's telling them. Does it seem harsh? It probably seems harsh to the oppressor. But you think about the one that's been oppressed. Think about the one whose, whose head has been crushed in the street. Think about the one who has had their harvest stolen from them so that someone can be can get drunk as they're engaging in this ancestral feast of worshiping a, a foreign a pagan deity. Think about what they're thinking. The oppressed. The oppressor, it's harsh. For the oppressed, they're thinking, praise God, spring at last. Praise God, Lord, we, we have cried out to you for decades and generations, and you are hearing our prayer. You are hearing our cries. Praise God, is it harsh? We go over to chapter 7 and we see a bit of why God does what he does. We'll read in chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. This is what he showed me. God shows Amos. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall that was built with a plumb line, but he has a plumb line in his hand. So you, you know what a plumb line is? It's, it's a string, and at the bottom of it, there's a, a, a point or a rock uh, that might be used. You know, I've used a washer to make a uh, a plumb line before, uh, but today they have fancy little plums that, that go to the end of it, little brass things that'll cost you 20 bucks at Lowe's, that's still the same thing, it's a weight tied to the end of a string, okay, and, and that, that weight causes the string to be straight, straight vertical up and down, and you build walls with those things, so the walls will be straight, remember the first time I, I used a plumb line, I was building a mailbox, someone, a uh, 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 teenager driving his pickup truck at four o'clock in the morning drunk took out my brick mailbox uh, I was not a happy camper uh, his um, his insurance company uh, gave me four hundred dollars to build a new mail new brick mailbox now you take a guy that loves tools and he has four hundred dollars in his hands and a brick mailbox to be built do you think I called a masonry company to build that oh no I thought I can buy a 48 inch level I've been wanting one of those and I can afford some trowels, and I can afford the things that I need to build it myself, and I can learn something in the process. How bad can it be? And so I used my plumb line, and I had that thing nice and, and straight on all four sides. It was about this tall, you know, and then it was a kind of a dark brown brick. It was really beautiful when I finished it at the end of the day, and, 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 and I went to bed. And then I woke up the next morning, and this nice, straight, on all sides, brick mailbox that I had built with a plumb line, it looked like this. <laughs> it had turned from a straight line to a river. I mean, it was flowing all over the place. 
I, I don't have a clue what happened. Some of you that are into masonry can tell me. Maybe I didn't mix the cement right. Maybe it was too liquid. Maybe it didn't compact it. I don't know. All I know is that it took that plumb line and it just it put it in knots. We don't get to establish the plumb line. God does. But Jesus, Amos has a vision here of God standing beside a wall that he has built with a plumb line. Plumb line straight, but he's holding a plumb line next to it. The implication is that it's no longer straight. The plumb line would have uh, harkened back to creation when everything was created without sin. When God looked at man and woman, he said, and he would have said, it is very good. But no longer is it very good. The plumb line is measuring this wall. The Lord said to Amos, Amos, what do you see? And I said, I said, a plumb line. And the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. In other words, with my plumb line, I'm going to measure my people. And I will never again pass by them. Remember the Passover when he passed by them and so they did not die? He said, I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel laid to waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. God's going to tear it to pieces. He will no longer be mocked by the nation of Israel. Does it seem harsh? Maybe to the oppressor, but not to the oppressed. The oppressors had taken sin that was easily defined in Scripture as sin, and they had taken it and they had excused it. Listen, it wasn't just them that do that. You do it and I do it, right? We all do that. We excuse it. They had done the same thing. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one of us to his own way. Yet God has laid on him, on Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It wasn't just the Israelites, it wasn't just the Judahites, it was the Epiites. Okay, it was all of us. We do the same thing, all of us. But God has laid on him, on Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. Our little sins that we think, well, they're too little to be noticed, God notices. God notices even the little sins that we brush aside, whatever they happen to be. Here's, here's what happens when we, when we brush aside and we think little of little sins. What we're doing is we're thinking little of God. If we make light of our little sins, we're making light of God's holiness. Because if we, if we say, well, God will excuse our little sins, God isn't that serious about our little sins. What we're doing is we're taking, we're taking what we know about God and His holiness and we're taking bits and pieces of it away. Like a kid taking away Lego or Duplo box, blocks from a wall. We're taking away little chunks of God's holiness. We're saying God, does, God isn't concerned about gossip. God isn't concerned about slander. Those are the acceptable sins in our culture today. Hatred, oh my goodness, it's all over. Everywhere we go, hatred, slander, and gossip, everything. You know, Scott Sauls defines gossip as pornography of the mouth. Because it, it, it's, it's done at the expense of somebody else that isn't even present so that the person engaging in the gossip can feel good about themselves. The little things, we, we take these little things like that and we, we, we pick away at God's holiness. And when we do that, we're compromising God in our own minds. He's, he will never be compromised. But in our own minds, in our own lives, we compromise God. When we compromise God, think about what's happening there. We're saying, God, in all of your holiness, we're saying we want you to bend in this area. 
no longer be holy in this area, God. In this area that we really like, that we really get excited about, don't be holy there. Be wishy-washy. Be unholy there. And when we do that, we, we like leaven through a loaf of bread, through this bread that you're kneading up. It goes throughout the whole loaf. And God is no longer holy at all. If he's unholy in a little bit, he's unholy in, in all of it. And he is no longer dependable. His motives will not be holy and we cannot depend on him. Would you want a holy or an unholy God to be your, your king? With all the power to be your king, but he's unholy and he's unholy in his motives? How can we have love and grace and mercy if justice is wishy-washy? We really don't want God to be unholy and compromised. We don't. We might think we do, but we don't. Listen, he's created us in his image. If he's compromised and unholy, then we were created to be unholy. But that's not the way he created us. He created us and he said, it's very good. In his image, he created us. And he said, man and woman, he created us. And he looked at man and woman, he said, they're very good. This creation is good. We want God to be holy. So our little sins are not little. They might be little dust, but they're not little. They're big. They're big. The big sins that we think, they're too big for God to forgive. He can't forgive those. Or he won't forgive those. There's no way that a God that is that holy can love somebody like me. Oh, yes, he can. Oh, yes, he can. Yes, he can. He can love me and he can love you. But we have to catch it that the little sins are big, the big sins are big, all the sins are big, all the sins separate us from the love of God who is in Christ Jesus. But Jesus Christ, who is the very son of the very God, created in holiness, or the, the creator who is holy, rather, the creator who is holy, he comes to us, he sees you and me, he comes from the Father, full of grace and truth, and he pours out his mercy and grace on all. Those that have sinned a little, those that have sinned a lot. Those that are the oppressed and those that are the oppressors, both, both, have Jesus Christ by faith and faith alone. Those that have the little sins of the oppressor or the oppressed, or those that have the big sin of the oppressor, we all have. We all have eternal life in Jesus Christ. This restoration, my friends, this restoration is made all the more grand when we understand the justice and the judgment. If we don't understand the judgment, then the restoration is like, yeah, big deal. Big deal. You know, so what? You gave me a great meal. God, thank you for the great meal. But a great meal to a starving man is more than a great meal, isn't it? Isn't it? The justice was due to Israel, just like it was due to me and to you. Look at this restoration that he gives us. It is extravagant. Jesus Christ is the restorer. Not, not Amos, not me, not David. Jesus Christ is restored in chapter 9 and verse 11. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and I will repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. All commentators agree, theologians agree, that the, the, the booth of David that he's talking about is the kingdom of David, the Messiah. You look in Isaiah chapter 4, Isaiah chapter 32, we're not going to go there today, but you look in both those places and you, you will see that this one that, that builds up this booth in the wilderness is Jesus Christ. 
And it's a booth that gives us security. It's a place where we can take shelter. It's a place where we are sheltered from the harsh elements. It's a place where we have refuge in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. When he says he's going to build up the booth of David, he's saying that he's going to rise up again. He's going to raise up the royal line of David who is in Jesus Christ. He's our king. That they may possess the remnant of Edom. That's the second thing we see in this restoration. What Edom represents here uh, is, is all nations. It's all Gentiles. He's not speaking of Edom as a nation. Often in the Old Testament, when Edom is spoken of, it's spoken of to refer to all nations. If you want to look at Acts chapter 15, verse 13 through 18, later on you can read about what James, the brother of Jesus, had to say about that in the, the great council in Jerusalem. Acts 15, 13 through 18 where we see that Edom represents all nations. He's telling the nation of Israel, I'm going to restore you through faith, that have faith in me, but I'm also going to restore all nations, even those that you hated and that hated you. I'm going to restore those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So it's not just that all nations are going to be restored. It's not that just that Jesus is going to do it, but it's going to be so rapid that it will, you'll be turning your head on a swivel trying to keep up with it. When he says the plowman is going to overtake the reaper, think about that. You're plowing, and then someone reaps. So you plow, you know, maybe in April, uh, but these guys were reaping grain, you know, in, in, in the not-too-distant futures. And he's saying the plow is overtaking them. And then he says that the, the treader, the treader of the grapes is going to overtake those that are sowing it. It's going to be happening so rapidly, and the harvest is going to be so so huge. It's going to be better than it ever was before. That's the, the, the fourth thing you see. There's going to be fast, but it's also going to be extravagant. An extravagant, lavish, opulent restoration put together by Jesus Christ. Look at the words that he uses there at the end of 14. He says, they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruits. There's going to be a massive harvest for these individuals. The mountains shall drip, drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. Can you get a picture of that? The mountains shall drip with wine. Remember back in chapter 5 and 24? Justice rolls down like a river. What God is saying here is my mountain's going to flow with wine. Good wine. It's a sign of God's extravagant grace that's going to be poured out on his people. The next thing he tells them, the final thing he tells them here, the fifth thing, is that it's going to last forever. I will plant them on their land, then they shall never again be uprooted. That's for the oppressor, and that's for the oppressed when they turn to Jesus Christ. And that's for you and for me. We will never be uprooted from the promised land, the land that we have in Jesus Christ. So when is that going to happen, you ask? Well, this is one of those beautiful passages where we get those words, already and not yet. Already and the not yet. So yeah, this is a not yet thing that we're going to see when we have eternal life in heaven. When we see Jesus Christ face to face, that's a not yet part that's going to be there. But my friends, it doesn't wait for that. What the context of the passage tells us is that it's an already. This is the day of the Lord is what uh, Amos refers to this as. This is the today thing. So even today, we, we can know that we have this restoration in Jesus Christ. No matter how little your sins are or how big your sins are, there's restoration in Jesus Christ. And the restoration with a relationship with him is greater than any judgment that we could ever have had because the judgment was taken out on Jesus the Christ that you and I might have life in him forever.
Only something better will cause us to let go of that stuff that we chase here on earth. Jesus Christ is better. Jesus Christ restores us to the uttermost. Yeah, it's winter. Springtime's coming. Springtime is coming. Springtime is coming. Where are you going to live? Are you going to live in the winter? Or are you going to live in the springtime in the hope of heaven through Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your restoration. Lord, thank you for judgment. Thank you for justice. Thank you, Father. It's, just, it's, it's part of your holiness. Lord, thank you for the mercy and the grace that comes with it. Thank you for what you pour out on us. Lord, I pray that you would continue to work in our midst, Lord, to, to give us hope even in tough times, that we would have hope in you and we would know that it's not always winter, that you, our Lord, are right here in our midst through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.